Tallinn, a Welsh word for Celtic harp. Welcome to Tallinn Tales. Feel free to pronounce it Tallinn like Tallinn Tales or Tallinn, but Tallinn Tales is a podcast that makes connections between science, culture, and folklore with a background harp accompaniment. I'm your host, Sophia Matson. I'm a harpist, scientist, storyteller, and teacher. I act as a shop, an old English word pronounced kind of like shop, but pronounced S-C-O-P. And I realized I just said shop twice, but it's kind of like you're a little British, maybe. Anyways, a shop tells stories while playing an instrument. On Tillin Tales, science and creativity are methods that I combine to enchant those who look for more within the everyday realm we experience. Uncovering the magic behind our experiences facilitates growth, enforces stability, and fosters appreciation among us all. If you want to learn more, you can listen to my welcome episode, Roots and Reveries. But for now, it is December, my favorite month. I'm wrapped up in a little blanket with Santa Claus on it. And I'm someone who enjoys the snow. There's so much beauty held still. So much contemplation in slow motion. I feel like I can finally hear myself as the snow and clouds seem to mute my surroundings and slow my steps. The layer of ice changes the same everyday scene into an art gallery. Thin branches are protected by a glossy frame where everything looks like a delicacy encased within a glass cloche. Putting lights around your house adds into the revamp of your neighborhood's fashion while also being practical for the darkness. I took a month to release a new episode because I felt the year really catching up on me and I couldn't deliver an episode that was not up to par with my Capricorn expectations. As much as I rely on consistency, don't forget about your own needs this holiday season. Instead of embodying an icicle, I try my best to embody a snowflake, floating down, slowly, and finally joining my friends on the ground to celebrate our long journey. I let myself play my favorite video game last night on my Nintendo Switch, Animal Crossing. The seasons change in that game too, so I changed my little outfit and redecorated my main room in my mansion because I grind in that game and gave my island residents some new outdoor decorations to match the holiday season. This was my favorite game as a child. I used to play it with my cousins, especially over our winter break. Winter break is a special time for me. My birthday comes days after Christmas, but as I age into my mid-twenties, I worry that this feeling will fade with adulthood. I fear the jubilance and elegance of winter festivities will fade as my body tires and eyes age, and I can't help but feel the times and traditions changing along with the climate. Maybe it's because being in my 20s is full of inconsistency and growth, which I can only relate to puberty around 13 years old, but I remember time seemingly getting faster and life becoming increasingly unpredictable. And really, these past few Decembers had been rainy. The winter breaks of my childhood were spent behind snow forts or bundled up in snow pants and mittens, and that's partly because the peak years of my childhood from 2008 to 2011 
had heavy snowfalls in December. In recent years, the snow seems to come around mid-January to February and lasts through the end of March, which is nothing unusual for a Midwesterner. And because it's been rainy for several years in early December, I can't listen to Christmas songs before Thanksgiving. I rely on these holidays to match the weather, and when they don't, I have to try really hard not to be disappointed. I love having four distinct seasons, but lately they've been unpredictable, like the seasons of my 20s. And when it's cold, it's cold. For my listeners outside the Midwest, you would not think Chicago or Milwaukee get as cold as you'd imagine, but the region around Lake Michigan experienced the polar vortex in the last week of January of 2019, um, as well as just north of Lake Michigan, too. But this is a deathly cold that comes from the Arctic Poles. So the polar vortex made its way down through, you know, the currents, the wind currents. This is how the climate works, made its way down from the North Pole into the upper Midwest in 2013 and basically has been haunting us since, but especially in the year 2019. It's the type of cold that makes you lose sense of smell immediately from opening the door. You feel frozen from the inside out, from your bones out to your soft, numb skin. And similar to COVID-19, it felt like an entire mission to go to the grocery store, covering your entire face, except this time because of the walk between your house and the car, and then from your car through the parking lot to get inside the grocery store. You have to leave room for only your eyes to peek through, and then bow your head and gaze downwards as the wind will freeze the tears onto your eyelashes instantaneously. The wind chill got down to like negative 50 or negative 60 degrees that week. Midwesterners love to talk about the weather because our climate is extremely varied. Lots of people make small talk about the weather, so if you're visiting from out of the region, beware. And if you run into someone like me, be even more wary because I have a peculiar ailment that turns my small talk into long talk about very bland topics like the weather or the operation of an elevator. (laughs) But you can't blame any of us too much. In the winters, we may reach a wind chill of negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit, while in the summers we can top 90 degrees, which is 32 Celsius for those of you outside the U.S. Every single season comes with a special Midwestern weather talk that is unique because we experience a roller coaster of seasons. First, there's winter with major blizzards and polar vortex conditions. And then comes Fool Spring, around early February, that is called Fool Spring because after a week of mild weather comes second winter. And then the Spring of Deception, which is slightly different from Fool Spring, as this mild weather comes sometime in March for like a week. But then it's followed by mud and slush and intense wind that takes up most of April. And finally, real spring comes by the end of April and then summer in June, but the summer thickens into a steam room, not a sauna because that heat is wet, which brings mosquito hell, followed by tornadoes, 
and the opposing winds of the tornadoes bring fake fall, which precedes the second summer sometime in October, and then real fall, and then back to winter. So, you see, the weather has formed an anxious attachment style with all of us in the Midwest, especially around Lake Michigan. Chicago experiences deadly heat in the summer that kills several people now with each year rising temperatures. But this anxious attachment has plenty of Midwesterners not believing in climate change, as if it's the same as believing in Santa Claus. The climate screws with us all the time. One day it's 80, and everyone knows it's the last surprise day of 80, so everyone in Milwaukee and Chicago flock to the beach as early as possible. Because there's not a lot of beaches around here, you know? If You have to live by the lake to be by the beach. So when you do move to the city that has the beach, you're going to the beach, right? Which I think that's what people on the coast do. They go to the beach regularly. Anyways, so when it's 80 degrees and everyone knows it's the last day of 80 degrees, we all go to the beach. And you have to go as early as possible because already at 6 p.m., it's going to be dark and 55 degrees. The next day, it's 35 degrees. So climate change, this is our every day. But my friends, each year, our extremes become more extreme by a couple degrees or a couple more inches of rain, which seems small, but because we're used to drastic, potentially deadly weather situations that we still go to work in, we can't see the climate change very well. So the sea is rising? Okay. The sea is thousands of miles away. We can't relate. And frankly, most people are happy the temperatures are rising after a hellishly long winter. So, the weather defines our friendly demeanor and small talk, but more than that, Midwesterners are humble and family-oriented. We drive to work through any weather, where a lot of people are farmers or in agriculture, or they work in a factory, or are teachers. And these jobs are everywhere, sure, but the goals of people I grew up with really aim for these jobs. Our upbringings in regular public schools and seasonal breaks line up well with a future with a factory or farming or a teaching career, while also allowing us to stay close to home. So it keeps this consistency, and more than that, the people I grew up with dream of marrying and raising a family, which also relies on consistency and tradition and as much simplicity as we can allow in our day-to-day. The urban diversity is what sets off rural people's buttons that make the sound interesting and, huh, different. While the weather outside is frightful, the people of Chicago feel like home. Milwaukee, where I currently reside, has extremely nice people, but something about the way Chicagoans look and act just feels right to me. Because regardless of their demographic, people sort of look like each other. They wear the same serious but non-aggressive expression walking down the street, but completely open up with conversation. Milwaukee is still a baby and and can be too Wisconsin-y for me sometimes, like saying the word bubbler for water fountain and being surprisingly apolitical. I think what I'm getting at is that Chicago is real. It's a city of people living their authentic lives, hardly putting on a show and opening up with that Midwestern kindness. There's hardly a fake-looking body or face or smile 
as you might see in LA or Miami, but it's not putting up a wall or giving aggressive New York vibes. Now, Chicago, with all its realness, its lights, the pubs, and people embracing the snowy weather, makes the perfect location for Christmas festivities. It's the setting for the movie Home Alone, one of the best Christmas movies of all time. A kid named Kevin is accidentally left home alone, and his giant family leaves for a Christmas vacation from O'Hare Airport, which created one of the best cinematic Christmas moments ever, where young Macaulay Culkin, playing Kevin, looks in the mirror and slaps both his cheeks and screams upon realizing he was left behind for the week of Christmas. You just have to know what I'm talking about. But Kevin doesn't know that some burglars planned on the family's absence, but that's no problem for Kevin because this kid makes very effective booby traps around all the possible entrances of his home. The way that this movie takes place in Chicago is perfect. The giant chaotic family with the random cousins and uncles and great uncles reminds me of my own Christmas family gatherings. All that realness from weather anxiety and tough work begs for a holiday. And of course, the snow and even the Catholic church that Kevin stumbles into one evening are reminiscent of my own experiences. Christmas is one of those holidays that brings my entire family together, for better or for worse. About 40 to 50 of us get together in one house with a bunch of food on the table. Everyone groups in their groups, and we all yell over each other and try to play a giant game of white elephant. I find most people celebrating Christmas like my other side of the family, where we have a much more intimate gathering where everybody takes turns to speak instead of screaming over each other. I find it easier to disappear into the chaos than be inevitably perceived in a small gathering. And when you're the harpist of the family, that can be hard. Now, I love all the festivities for the unique tidings they bring. And when it snows on Christmas or Christmas Eve, it brings that little bit of Christmas magic that we all secretly believe in, or at least used to believe in. I have quite good memories of bringing my snow pants to Christmas, and on other December days, trudging in the cold for hours as a child. Most children feel unfazed by the cold. Kids depend on regular physical activity to balance their emotional well-being and make sense of their growing body in space. So when snowstorms hit the upper Midwest, kids cherish their snow days off from school, outside, especially as they have unnaturally been sitting at a desk for months. The change of seasons brings a fresh hit of dopamine from the new wintry games to play in snowy scenes. I remember trudging through the snow like it was my life calling, like I've been waiting my entire life to experience the challenge of building snowmen and snow forts. I love to feel the resistance of the snow and test out my baby Nordic strength. But now that I'm a teacher, though a part-time traveling one at that, I get a small built-in break with the school locations I teach closing for holidays. These breaks are for kids, yes, but are necessary for teachers to reassess their lesson plans and have a bit of breathing room. I mean literal breathing room. These kids are still learning the extremely important concepts of personal space and consent. And now that consent is especially a hot topic nowadays, we may think about how these things are taught to children. Social etiquette 
used to be taught quite seriously, especially for the uptight British people. There is no specific class on social etiquette anymore, and creating a social etiquette that is inclusive of all neurotypes, disabilities, and ethnic and gender identities would end up being widely contested and difficult to implement. For many kids, learning social etiquette is a confusing part of growing up because you learn how to identify social patterns and identities from the adults who do not yet understand the upcoming social norms. Add a global pandemic in the mix, and suddenly, you no longer are exposed to many types of people. You only interact with your family members that share your genetic makeup and social tendencies. The other people don't have half their face, or they exist virtually through a screen. Especially since schools reopened for in-person classes, you may have heard claims that children are misbehaving more than they have in the past. From a few entirely separate sources, I have heard the comment, you'd think parents would punish their children for bad behavior at school, but parents don't care. A common response is typically that parents do not punish their children anymore. But ideas of what a family should look like are changing. Ideas about what a child should look like are changing. Ideas about what we should believe in are changing because most of this stuff is no longer being enforced in society. This happens over and over again in history where social rules and politics that we stuck closely to have unraveled before our eyes. As everyone began to work remotely or worked in locations that threatened their own lives, family dynamics shifted, education expectations shifted, work responsibilities shifted, meetings became emails, work became life, and older children that relied on their parents for guidance may have realized the working world was a simulation. Okay, I'm about to use a kid voice. Mom used to tell me that she can't stay home and work. Working from home doesn't seem like real work. I no longer imagine what mom and dad do all day. I see it and it looks stupid and boring. How does being on a computer provide us dinner? The rules must be made up. Adults just say things to get me off their case. So what happens when kids see the loopholes and feel the disorganized, confused chaos of their household? Anarchy. You know, Kevin McAllister from Home Alone was a bad kid too. But if you watch the movie, you understand how the chaotic environment of the Christmas gathering pushed him to lash out. So he was punished to sleep alone in the attic the night before the family left for vacation. And everyone's like, geez, the mom punished him without a second thought to sleep alone in the attic when she doesn't even really know what happened. But from her perspective, she's taking care of the entire house with a ton of people in it and is experiencing the same stress. So Kevin lashed out at his cousin, and his mom lashed out at him. Noise and chaos are typical stressors for people of all ages that prevent learning mechanisms and calm behavior. And when there's a lot of uncontrollable sensory stimulation in your environment, your brain doesn't have capacity for much else. 
and Kevin's family forgot him the morning they left for O'Hare Airport in all the craziness. Of course they forgot him. So Kevin spent a scary week isolated during Christmas battling burglars trying to break in. But imagine the hell if he spent a week isolated in the same environment with all of his family members like someone got COVID-19. I'm sure many of you actually can. And I can't leave out the kids whose parents were essential workers, balancing their own emotional trauma with the trauma of everyone else physically around them. Children are like stress microfiber dusters. They pick it all up. They are like the most efficient Bluetooth connector. They sync to everything. Stressful environments in early childhood is a major predictor for well-being in adulthood. And at the age of three, the brain is at 200% the capacity of an adult, which means the neurons or brain cells are making every single connection possible. Those brains are in hyper-learn mode. And the brain during development does this thing where it takes in as much information as possible. And then as we age, we start to lose the capacity to learn as much, to learn as easily. We're not really microfiber dusters anymore. We're just like an off-brand feather duster. So we got to try a little harder. And we learn an infinite amount of information in that time, not just math and history, but what sounds come from where, how long it takes to get from one destination to another, why someone becomes mad or happy, or why we ourselves become mad or happy. And we continue to learn this stuff throughout adulthood, but during this time, you really lock it in. But when we learn something and don't practice learning that thing to cement it in our memory, we lose it. And you're like, but I have all this random knowledge that I don't use every day. Well, it's weird to think that some of us know some random factoid like bees cuddling inside flowers while hugging each other's toes as relevant information that we practice inside our brains. And while I didn't have to practice that fact to rehearse it in my social or practical world, I held it and rehearsed it for my own entertainment. So kids pick up what is relevant in their environment and rehearse it for themselves because they pick up everything. So you might not pick up a little random fact, but the kids will. All these kids that missed social public experiences from being in school and going to community events or even a store made different brain connections that will soon impact how our society functions. They cemented skills like navigating YouTube and online classroom paradigms with virtual class time and chat rooms as early as two or three years old for some of them. There's a lot of effects that happened with the pandemic, right? And if you talk to older people, you know, elderly people, they have different social norms because before their brain fully developed, other things were normal. And those are the things they really held on to as true. The pandemic may have forced us into social isolation, but we have nonetheless been inching towards that lifestyle. I believe our sedentary online rituals have made most older children and adults struggle with eye contact and acknowledgement, even though the only thing showing from wearing a mask is our eyes. Eye contact seems to be a slowly growing topic of discussion. Should it be expected? Is it necessary? Is it inclusive? 
Eye contact can be aggressive. The eyes are the window to the soul. So where's consent now? I teach my lessons knowing that all kids learn differently. Some prefer to observe, some mimic, some fidget or run around the classroom. In fact, it's rare for most of the kids to be engaging in eye contact with me as I teach my lessons. My method is asking for confirmation of their comprehension. A lot of teachers do like a mini quiz after explaining the directions to see if the kids listened. Why do teachers do a mini quiz? To explain the directions to see if the kids listened. Well, there is certainly a curve for teachers to be all on board with different learning mechanisms in their classroom. Most teachers, in my experience, try their best to acknowledge neurodiversity. Where the term neurodiversity emerged in the 1990s, it refers to the fact that everyone has different neural wiring, different brain wiring. The woman who coined the term, Judy Singer, included the suffix diversity to refer to the civil rights movement, highlighting the importance of including minority races and ethnicities. So Singer used the suffix diversity to destigmatize behaviors in those whose brains had extra difficulty fitting in with societal expectations. So the majority of people would find behaviors like stimming or fidgeting or repeating words or phrases or avoiding noise or light or carrying particular routines odd. Although the majority of people do exhibit a couple of these behaviors from time to time. So it's when these behaviors are all compounded as an everyday experience that when you ignore them, they cause extreme stress or meltdowns in an individual. We characterize them as autistic or having ADHD or other mental disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder. These are all examples of neurodivergence. And this is where the term neurodivergence gets on my nerves, even as a so-called neurodivergent individual myself. When we spend a couple years in societal disarray, compounded with computers and phones that discourage in-person social skills, many people develop antisocial and anxious tendencies that you'd normally see more often in a neurodivergent individual. So everyone is finding themselves in a place unable to make eye contact or answer the door or make a phone call for God's sake. And the actual neurodivergent people that may not even have known of their divergence had exacerbated emotional and physical distress by the abrupt change in routine and expectations. Routines are key, especially when you work with or have kids, you discover the magic of routines on an entirely different level. Your brain is plastic, not like Barbie. It means it's moldable throughout your lifespan, not just in childhood. But before the age of 25, it's a little extra stretchy. Your lifestyle literally shapes your brain. You are building connections specific to your habits. That's why habits are hard to break. Routines make us strong, and strength makes us capable of handling more than we're used to. But routines aren't always good. They can make you strong in ways you don't want to be. They can create a monster. Sometimes eliminating harmful neural networks can cause physical distress seeming like you're actually moving backwards in progress. And this sedentary, isolated lifestyle 
creates social anxiety and does not give you social practice to make eye contact. Our routine, practicing family dinner while allowing everyone to go on their phone, is a prime example of socializing without eye contact. Hanging out while everyone goes on their phones but still talking and laughing. But some people have been made to force things uncomfortable in the routines in order to comply with social etiquette or at the bare minimum appear normal enough to not make others uncomfortable with their lack of normalcy. Those are the neurodivergent people. Here's an example. Autistic and neurodivergent people, while they struggle to make eye contact because it's strange or uncomfortable or practically unnecessary in their perspective, still know they should try to make eye contact with teachers or grocery store clerks and older folks who speak to them. Of course they'd rather look at the wall or the credit card machine or their phone, but with the phone? You are not just avoiding eye contact, you're distracting yourself. If you can't make eye contact because you're anxious, that's okay. We can adapt and we should respect your well-being wishes, regardless of your neurotype. A phone is not a fidget toy, though it dangerously takes the place of one. And I think that's why a whole lot of people are sort of coming out of the neurodivergent closet These antisocial practices becoming normalized makes it easier for neurodivergent and autistic people to kind of explain themselves, perhaps. This all goes to say that people being on phones as a normal social activity makes social situations harder for regular people in a so-called neurotypical world, but a million times harder for neurodivergent people that are also adapting this method. It's like antisocial amplification by a thousand if you're neurodivergent. Gaining normal social skills is nearly impossible. When everyone becomes complicit in looking at their phones around each other, you get no social feedback to evaluate testing the waters like, did they look away when I started excessively discussing an off-topic subject? Did they think it was funny? Were they angry? It's possible to interpret someone laughing at their phone as laughing at you. And you won't know if they're listening to you or ignoring you or if they're annoyed or indifferent. In someone who lacks the ability to read social cues, the lines are blurred even further. So social environments are stressful enough. No wonder people are glorifying staying in bed all day. Kids depend on these social experiences and need to see adults trying harder. All of this leads to the kid anarchy. If no one is around to listen or watch me, I have freedom and power. Children use this freedom for experimentation as a part of their natural growth and learning development. But it's like giving children the keys to a science lab when you stare at your work from home computer. Soon, a mysterious gas is leaking and there's going to be an explosion no one knows how to clean up. Teachers received all these kids. Many kids learn how to make a circle when they're three and four, but they missed that. So I taught a classroom of kids like six and seven years old that turned to chaos because making a circle was such a strange social phenomenon. Everyone was complaining that they had to hold people's hands to form the circle. And then being confronted when you're actually in the circle with every single person in your class sitting around you as we all face one another. 
most people do not sit across from one another completely still, crisscross applesauce, and watch as each person does something new and strange. How do you emphasize the importance of anything in school when it's not valued in the real world? The mute and turn off function on Zoom allows us to disregard any social norms for respect, with eye contact being the least important now. I never needed to see someone speak to listen, but I know it makes them feel heard and valued. But now I can turn off my camera because I feel uncomfortable and can just get completely naked and dance around if I didn't have a serious fear of the camera getting magically turned on. And muting yourself on top of that means you can actually skip the meeting altogether. Going to school in person is still being established as a normal routine. They also need to be taught how to use their environment to their advantage. But we haven't quite reached that point of societal instruction. We don't really know how to use our environment to our advantage. We all now must learn how to be in long-distance relationships and close relationships in person. How to be in two places at once, on the work hall in California, but in my living room in Wisconsin. How to communicate effectively across a thousand miles while managing different time zones. And how to tie all these different types of brains together that compute time and space and communication completely differently into a team. We need to become like Santa Claus and his reindeer. Now, for a little harp interlude break, because next, I'm going to talk about punishment for antisocial behaviors, industrialization, and Christmas monsters that encourage desirable social behavior. Most of these antisocial behaviors learned through the pandemic and topped with technology would have been strictly punished in the old school classroom or any classroom previous to the pandemic isolation. Today, a lot of these classic beliefs about how children should act in class are upheld by teachers because respect is a major school initiative. In my time as an early childhood instructor for music, I have witnessed several classrooms using strict punishment systems that would definitely go against the gentle parenting movement in the name of respecting your teachers and fellow students. And as far as gentle parenting goes, I'm not all in. I haven't been a fan of parenting trends and initiatives since I found my mom reading parenting books when I was little. I was like, just ask me, I'm right here. I'm the expert on what I need. Obviously, now I know that professional advice on child development and behavior makes a huge difference in maintaining peace in your household, and 
I know that you can't always just give a kid what they think they need. Sometimes the most efficient teaching method is raising your voice in a loud classroom or setting a classroom routine that goes against some kids' natural tendencies or giving rewards like stickers and high fives or creating adult expectations. The real world is not gentle. And while I cringe when a teacher isolates and yells at a three or four year old for like pulling their pants down, I mean, they didn't know it was bad or weird, otherwise they wouldn't have done it. They have to know that doing that results in major real world punishment and outcasting. But recently, research shows that we might actually need to give kids what they need. That doesn't mean give them the iPad. It means put something in their hands to play with that will also allow them to listen. Let them run for 30 seconds when they want to run. Creating an illusion of control for the child actually helps them control their ability to listen and learn. Luckily, we are entering an era of listening to our bodies and listening to our children. (laughs) Creating an illusion of control helps mitigate fatigue in adults too. So say, I'm going to work on this for 30 minutes straight and then I can give myself something gratifying as long as it doesn't impede my ability to start work again after my break. So as a whole, we have just begun to discover the good magic of this illusion of control, as we usually associate power and control with bad government people. We give many things a strange power that doesn't inherently exist. Maybe it does, but I don't know. Something or someone, whether that is the government or Jesus Christ or Santa Claus or your mom or yourself, determines the ultimate law. And unless you believe you hold the key to the universe yourself, the chosen entity of power holds more wisdom and experience than you, so you trust their decisions, you trust their guidance. You might just believe everything they say. And that's what being three years old is like. The giants that seem to address every question with infinite knowledge and wisdom clearly have the power. This is why kids so easily believe in Santa. This is why kids listen when you tell them to do something. Then why are these crazy kids out of my control? Look, I have taught groups up to 26 children under the age of six at once. I have to keep them entertained, similar to a podcast, but more like a clown podcast, for up to an hour. And I feel more like a circus performer than a music teacher that targets cognitive development. (laughs) And these kids, with their brains and hyper-learning and growing mode, experience everything like an IMAX or Dolby surround sound immersive movie theater experience. Especially in early childhood, everything is new. Like riding a different roller coaster every single day. Which means everything is sensationally intense emotional, and it seems risky. Having a brain like a child is psychedelic, where the term psychedelic is derived from the Greek words psyche, which is soul or mind, and delaun, I think that's how you pronounce it, D-E-L-O-U-N, to manifest, where the combination of those words are mind manifesting. 
That is really what learning is, forcing yourself to imagine something that you did not previously know existed or was possible, and then building a little bridge of brain cells to form a connection that tells you this concept exists and it's cemented. And this concept informs everything else that I do. Your everyday experience is your mind confirming and cementing your experiences as real. You bounce around and spin around and fall down and somehow this builds your brain to form an understanding of your body in space, otherwise called proprioception. So you don't have control of these roller coaster riding hooligans, children, because you haven't sufficiently captured their attention. Everything is getting their attention, but but it's only like the most noisy thing or the most crazy looking thing that's going to really get their attention, right? And you haven't made their little bodies pause and their little eyes open wide with curiosity. Just like the rest of us, they give power to what they don't know. They also give power to routine, very subliminal. So for my job, I sing ridiculous songs and do ridiculous dances in front of children and adults that foster attention, memory, and cognitive flexibility, as well as perception and motor skills. And then I do them over and over again so the kids know that we're doing them and they're used to them and they feel comfortable doing them. Imagine you're a child and you're smaller than everything around you because the world is built for big adult humans. You just woke up from a nap in the car. You're in a new, strange place with no idea how you got there. And you come into a room and get into a circle with a bunch of kids your size. And apparently, kids also have parents like you. And all of a sudden, this young blonde woman asks for every little human's name, looks into each one of our eyes, and then sings a little personal song including our names and a way to keep the beat. That many adults at one time that you don't even know, singing your name and copying the way that you want to move, you have the power and control? And all the big adults somehow know about the fluffy white sheep that you saw in a book that goes bah, even though you've never seen it in real life. And then soon, every adult is singing and crawling on the floor, singing about sheep and saying bah. But sometimes adults in the room choose not to participate. And when that happens, kids see their all-knowing mommies and daddies not engage with my activities, and my activities seem kind of sus. Suddenly, this big room with big people and loud, strange little people are making loud noises, and you're trapped by that heavy door. And this lady keeps looking at me when she's using her voice in that strange way. I do a lot to mitigate children's suspicions. We sit on the floor with the children to get at their level. We do that because it makes the kids feel safe, like we're right next to them, ready to hold them and catch them when they fall, which allows them to feel capable of even trying in the first place. They want to be functioning, accomplished adults. So... Why would they do something when adults don't do it either? Ultimately, they rely on their parents or guardians to tell them what information is important to attend to and hold on to. So even though you might not have the control at home because they already feel safe at home where they live, outside of home, 
they rely on parents and guardians to show them what's good. Living every day with a brain at 200% capacity Dolby Theater surround sound is exhausting, so selectively allocating attention based on observing the adults you trust is how you don't go into overdrive. Now, most adults over the age of 25 have classroom social skills ingrained, yet remove themselves from those responsibilities once they graduate high school. And when you graduate high school and turn 18, you gain literal permission to your own autonomy. But this happens incrementally your whole life, usually marked with age milestones. We expect our children to grow out of diapers and pull-ups at some point. One day, kids reach a height for the front seat of the car, etc. Naturally, as kids turn seven and eight, they have an old enough of an ability to critically think themselves out of believing in Santa Claus. And that's because they begin to understand the limitations of the physical world. That birds, insects, and only a few select mammals and fish can fly. Definitely not reindeer. Unless you were like me as a child, I, I pushed Santa narrative for a long time because I needed the tradition to exist. I never wanted my parents to admit they were Santa. Where's the Christmas magic? The real magic could not possibly be the power of giving and the power of love. That's too boring. Just kidding. Anyway, by the time you're 25, you hopefully realize how stupid it was that you chose to drink all those liquors combined just because you could, or had that deadbeat boyfriend because you're a free woman, or spent too much money on something you didn't really need. And if you have kids, and your kid can't follow the crowd, it feels like an ill reflection on you. The parental response is to yell at your kids, which is always like, I'm singing here, why are you yelling? Your kids don't know what to do because they need you to show them, but you've been on your phone, and now you're making loud yelling noises that disrupt the entire lesson. And it's also like, I avoid those types of activities most of the time, so yelling at your kid for simply observing and listening in a way that suits them is quite ignorant of their emotional autonomy. As these so-called naughty children are being yelled at for who knows what and who cares what, I forget they're only seven or four or two years old because the frustration of these teachers or parents are so inflamed, like the mom in Home Alone. We're all experiencing the stress. Like I mentioned earlier, there's an uproar of teachers complaining about how the kids in the past couple years have been particularly bad. I've witnessed plenty of teachers kicking kids out of class for things like talking out of turn or saying bad words or refusing to participate or even fidgeting, things that most adults do freely. But everyone, children and adults, need to learn how to be tolerant of distractions and neurodivergence. Special education teachers are not the only ones who should experience training in other ways of daily functioning or working or learning. With that, we wouldn't punish ourselves as much, and teachers wouldn't feel the pressure to punish children for things like fidgeting or opting out of activities that make them feel uncomfortable. And you're like, my kids don't know what they need, and my kid doesn't want to behave, or these kids are inherently naughty. Okay, so... Let's think about why we think this. We're really gonna get into it. On one hand, you have the blank slate idea, where kids begin as perfect angels. On the other hand, you have original sin, 
which is the idea that Adam and Eve sinned, and now children are susceptible to being little demons. We end up combining these two extremes in our perception of children. So they don't know anything, but when they break the rules, they wanted to break the rules. And strangely, there is truth in all of that, but it's just the process of natural experiential learning. Being as kids' brains are extremely impressionable and testy, they make questionable choices. What happens when I spill the milk? What happens when I talk back? And when they're three, they begin to comprehend cause and effect. Many of the kids will just tell stories. One time, my baby brother fell down a slide, and he got owies on his leg, and mommy gave him a band-aid, and he was crying. So this is the age that kids are really understanding their own memories as existing in the same world as their peers or teachers and other random people, besides the people they see at home. I get a lot of kids asking, do you have a mommy and daddy? Do you have a house? You don't live here? And it's these questions that in turn make adults realize how new the children are to this earth even though they're perfectly capable of screaming a bad word they heard that makes them sound like they're much older with ill intent. Figuring out what is bad comes with being bad, and oftentimes witnessing siblings and classmates being bad if you're too afraid of being bad. However, being bad looks different now than how it used to look. A lot of kids swear now with no repercussions. I mean, swear words are worked into so much media now, it's extremely casual. And as I discussed earlier, a lot of kids have a hard time with social classroom skills such as sitting still and paying attention. In the past, corporal punishment, which is physical abuse, was a common practice to get kids in line for something as simple as speaking out of turn, which I do all the time. But corporal punishment was usually held publicly with a crowd in the center of a town square or whatever, where authorities would secure the alleged criminal onto a board or post by nails or ropes and cuffs. And when the authorities were finished inflicting physical pain on the criminal, they left it up to the crowd to throw rotten food or rocks at the criminal in a way of giving power to the people, though they were all riled up like a crowd of mad, thirsty dogs. And wow, corporal punishment seems to do the trick. And when prisons changed from being used as simple holding chambers before public execution, they shifted to be used as long-term holding cells where the convicted would experience the daily torture away from the public eye. So now, the kids don't see the repercussions of disobeying the law. And most adults don't know and don't pay attention to what happens behind prison doors. So no more casually beating kids in the streets either, because it's time to leave all of that out of the streets and it's up to the parents. Those kids were their personal property before they married them off, after all. And back then, adults did not understand why kids made choices they made whatsoever. I mean, there wasn't actually science to really show them how or why. And kids will be kids, so you bet they were being naughty. A tried-and-true way of establishing power and dominance in what seems like chaos and anarchy is through physical force. In most cases, teachers and parents just used a stick or belt or their hand to slap kids, which is enough of a reminder that I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big, you're little. 
I'm right, you're wrong, and there's nothing you can do about it. If you've watched Matilda, you know what I'm talking about. And what corporal punishment effectively accomplishes is creating an anxious association between bad behavior and physical pain, cause and effect. But the association becomes muddled with other factors, such as the perpetrator inflicting the pain. When you incite fear, you garner more attention. So, if a teacher has made themselves into the feared commander, children might be more likely to keep their eyes and ears on whatever the teacher is saying as to avoid punishment. Kids were fear-conditioned into proper behavior along with the public embarrassment of having your impressionable peers witness your humiliation and copy the adults. You get beat up if you were, you know, misbehaving or doing something like clicking or tongue or fidgeting or whatever. You get made fun of for that. You get beat up. And, um, well, this was a pretty good way to get the kids to learn to, you know, not misbehave, right? But at this point, we all know it's not that simple. Anxiety is a major inhibitor for learning anything that doesn't have to do with what you're anxious about. Because the real lesson fear conditioned into the child's brain was not collect this knowledge I'm telling you, it was stop moving, don't make a sound, don't draw any attention to yourself, make yourself invisible in the crowd of other students sitting like robots in their desks. Ultimately, using anxiety and fear to control your students takes their mind off the silly little math lesson or even asking questions that lead to more learning because you might get slapped. Adults know that power does not only lie in physical mass and strength in the world, it depends on money. Children rely on their parents. And the days used to be frugal. No heat, no electricity. Kids shared rooms more often. But nowadays, more and more kids, to some lucky extent, have their own rooms, their own toys their own phone, but have no idea how their food reaches the table, how they have the best boots and snow pants for playing outside, how they receive the new technology and games each Christmas, and what makes them deserve all that. For some, nothing. For others, doing half-assed weekly chores. But before 1938, there was no law regulating child labor in America. Until then, children under 14 were expected to contribute to the household in some way. Sustaining large Christian-American families was possible by sending your child off to work to bring back some coins. And if they didn't, they would get beaten. But one factor allowing this mentality was the religious basis of Christian Puritanism, stressing the importance of labor as an act of worship. So Richard Baxter was a Puritan pastor from the 1600s, and he stated, Be diligent in your callings, and spend no time in idleness, and perform your labors with holy minds to the glory of God, and in obedience to his commands. (laughs) That was pretty bad. But the way that I take it is that you should dedicate yourself to a job that fulfills you, and in doing so, that fulfills God, regardless of how much money you make. And that's all fine except for that most people did not think about it that way. They internalized this hard-working belief and did not find it acceptable for adults and their children to be doing nothing, because doing so would be dishonoring God. 
what's a mental health day? What's a vacation? And here's the final kicker. As long as a child could walk and talk, they could be made of use. If they disobeyed, they were sinning. Besides, children were not considered blank slates, but instead were tainted with original sin like anyone else. And they should know that doing anything out of the ordinary was an act of disobedience. And what is the response to disobedience? Corporal punishment. The idea of a sanctioned fairy tale childhood at this point did not exist. The adult and child world was hardly separate. It's not like a Disney fairy tale. It's a Grimm's fairy tale, right? It's real. During the 19th century or 1800s, plenty of kids worked in the mines and factories because it was common to hire entire families. The Industrial Revolution led the culture to become less likely to rely on the land bringing good tidings and more on their boss at the factory. One very influential figure of this time was Andrew Carnegie, born in 1835 and dead by 1919. My great-grandma was actually alive during his final years. And by the age of 12, he was helping his family work. Carnegie worked 12-hour days, six days a week, changing spools of thread in a cotton mill at the age of 12. Eventually, he started working as a telegraph messenger and then became the secretary for railway operations. And then this helped him elevate to a position of superintendent of the military railways and the Union government's telegraph lines in the East, which means he helped operate Union communication and travel during the Civil War. After this, he became a major investor for fossil fuel energy and ironwork trade, which led him to earn a fortune in the steel industry. So after he invented an efficient and cheap system for steel production, he also had a monopoly on raw material mining and trade, such as coal. His share of the steel enterprise was bought when he, re- when he retired, making him a millionaire. But with today's inflation, equates his earnings to over $7 billion. So Carnegie then became very well known for his philanthropy. He founded universities, libraries, and orchestral halls. And he had a white beard and sparkling eyes, so the people during this time nicknamed him Santa Claus for his generosity. Polar Express much? During this industrial time, the cultural practices and belief systems adapted to the idea of the American Santa Claus. Christmas was not just the time to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, but the time for gift-giving as the three kings bestowed gifts upon Christ. Gifts cost money, though, and kids who misbehaved were likely kids that did not bring in money for the family. Why would kids deserve a gift bought with money? No, instead give them coal to remind them how they failed to contribute to the family that year. Give them coal to remind them to work harder in the mines and factories. Where did Santa and reindeer and elves come from, then? Those hard-working Puritan settlers were not fond of Christmas. The Puritans, when they came over to America, those are pretty much the first white settlers that had the whole witch trials situation, they banished celebratory behaviors, like dancing and eating copious amounts of food or decorating. They did not give power to the saints like the Catholic Church did. And bear with me as we time travel a little further back 
So those celebratory behaviors were adapted from the pagans, where pagan just means rural or country dwelling in Latin, which refers to the people who had multiple gods or deities, right? Those are the pagans. And basically, pagans just based their beliefs off the nature they were surrounded by. But as Christianity spread throughout Europe, sometimes those behaviors like lighting candles or feasting or decorating fir trees or even giving gifts were adapted for Christian holidays. And other times they were condemned and eliminated. But often the pagan solstice celebrations were complemented with some kind of sacrifice to give back to the earth, which fertilizes and balances the ecosystem. It's not like they were mass murdering cows like we do today. But around the world, the winter solstice was ultimately a celebration to worship the sun, as it would rise and stay longer after the darkest day of the year. People feast to make use of their harvest and store energy for the rest of the cold winter. It's very practical. Giving offerings or sacrifices to the earth or sun was a way to fertilize the land, like I said. And the, the Roman pagan winter solstice festival called Saturnalia practiced gift-giving too. Lighting candles and bonfires like St. Lucia Day in Scandinavia came from Norse tradition where daylight only lasts a few hours. And cracking nuts and roasting them over a fire is an ancient practice because cooking over a fire was the main cooking method. One ritual involving indigenous peoples of the Arctic had shamans prepare a mushroom with psychedelic properties called the Amanita muscaria identified by its red cap and white spots. Since the mushrooms grow near pine trees, trees considered trees of everlasting life and wisdom, these mushrooms were also considered wisdom-giving and lucky truth-seeking. So to ingest these highly toxic mushrooms, they were often dehydrated to lower toxicity by placing them in stockings to roast over a fire like a chimney or hanging them on branches of trees, these decorative little red and white mushrooms. Indigenous Scandinavians called the Sami are known for reindeer herding, and they would feed the reindeer the Amanita muscaria mushroom. And the consumption of these mushrooms made reindeer leap about as if they could fly. Sami people knew the metabolization of the reindeer would detoxify the mushroom, making it safe to consume as a reindeer piss beverage. And who knows, maybe they imagined the reindeer flying. But strangely, it wasn't until an anonymous poem written in 1823 that depicted Santa with a sleigh full of gifts being pulled by reindeer. That poet may have drank from the reindeer piss. But where did Santa Claus come from? Saint Nicholas was a real man, where the only historical certainty of his life was that he became the bishop of a place called Mira in the fourth century. His red costume was likely adapted from his red bishop cap and robe, and he was born in ancient Lycia, which is a mountainous region of modern-day Turkey, and traveled to modern-day Egypt and Palestine, where he was captured and tortured by the Roman emperor during the time of Christian persecution, but then released by Constantine the Great. Anyways, in his death, people honored him for his legacy of great generosity and miracles of saving people from danger or sickness. And eventually, St. Nicholas Day was celebrated in many countries on December 6th as sort of a tribute to, you know, the gifts. They adapted him from a lot of the pagan gods that would bring gifts and leave them in shoes and whatnot. Then the Reformation happened that spread Protestantism 
over Catholicism, so that kind of condemned and made it strange to honor saints in Christianity. Except in Holland, where Sinterklaas remained. And let me tell you, those Christmas traditions are weird as hell. Because the Moors from Spain invaded northern regions to bring back northern slaves at one point in the past, the Danish people gave Sinterklaas a loyal servant that helped him deliver gifts named Black Pete. When they marched through the parade as Black Pete, they were blackface to show Santa's servant is from Moorish Spain. Old tales claim that Black Pete takes the naughty children in his sack back with him to Spain. It helps to make your children believe in something that isn't real when you believe in something that isn't real too. And this is how you learn to obey your parents, but it's also how you learn racism. Then, the chimney was invented. So as Santa used to climb through the window, the myth changed to him sliding down the chimney. Along with that logic, Saint Nick carried the chimney sweep stick to hit naughty children. But other tales have Black Pete carrying the stick. And then they say that his face is black not from being of Moorish descent, but because he's covered in chimney dust. Nowadays, they typically just say Black Pete is Santa's happy helper, but they still wear the black face, which is pretty freaking crazy. In Germany, Santa Claus also has a servant named Krampus, who just looks like a demon man with horns and hooves, who is said to have originated from the Norse pagan god of the underworld. Where Santa would deliver presents to good children, Krampus would beat naughty children with sticks and sometimes take them to hell. In those days, if beating wasn't a good enough reason to make your children act right, condemning them to hell with a strange looking demon creature was a great alternative to getting them to act right. Because what's scarier than getting beaten by your parents? Getting beaten by someone or something that you don't understand. Not being able to predict their actions. People were quick to demonize anyone who looked or spoke or acted differently from them, especially if the other was killing or enslaving your own kind at some point in history. It doesn't matter if it was 200 years ago. Power is given to things that you don't understand. Much prejudice can be learned from a very young age by observing what your parents and guardians are afraid of without the ability to critically question it. When English Puritans came to America, they did not celebrate Christmas with any of these pagan traditions to keep the devil away. Doing anything besides your duties would result in severe punishment because that would bring the devil. Then European immigrants like the Germans started to come over, and so the tradition of Santa Claus and decorating Christmas trees came over too. Though it took a while for those traditions to be accepted, Santa started coming down the American chimney, which was commonly burning coal during the era of the Industrial Revolution. The myth adapted for bad kids to get a lump of coal when they embarrassed the family or failed to contribute to the new industrial society. And Santa's elves? Those were based on little house elves called Tompton in Sweden that kept your home clean and tidy but soon became depicted as little factory workers that made all the toys. I actually have a Tompty in my house, but he just hides in the tree. He's a little felt Tompty. Those loyal elves of Santa, the generous man who makes all things possible, could be Carnegie. 
giving all the little children opportunities to contribute to the economy by working in factories. Unless you were devout Christians, you likely associated Christmas mainly with Santa, reindeer, elves, and presents. And all wonderful traditions, those are. But nowadays, kids don't get coal. And they don't go to work. Christmas is just a magical time. Or is it? Giving kids this Christmas myth helps give them the idea of how society functions and answers the tough questions through fantastical storytelling. This is how your toys arrive. A ton of little elves in a factory. A guy who delivers them makes it all possible. But it gives kids a moral compass of sorts, where if they don't follow it, they're not rewarded by the magical man that flies across the sky with every toy imaginable. They might end up with coal. But a recent family Christmas movie I watched on Netflix was about bringing families together through tension and emotional hardship, and I would not recommend it because it's one of those terribly ridiculous acting Christmas movies. But the myth of Santa was debunked in this movie. I thought that if I was a kid and I watched a family movie where I found out that Santa was being impersonated by my parents, I would have been so upset. But now I think the attitude is far more casual. The power of teleportation doesn't hold much power now that we can practically do it through FaceTime and Zoom. Kids have near full access to the internet after all. So why would we need a Santa that delivers toys when we know how to ask the robot woman to order presents that arrive in a fortnight? And you know, in that movie, Santa only appears at the very end to the mom who makes the entire Christmas possible. She pretends to be Santa and she pulls it off. And then like the real Santa Claus appears for like a second and winks and she looks away. When she looks back, he's gone. So Santa is kind of only functioning for the parents to do the right thing for their kids, which is interesting. The West has reached a new level of freedom in this world, thanks to unpaid child laborers in foreign countries and many factories and mines. Again, we have reached an era where the line is extremely blurred between children and adults. An enlightenment era for the children. Most of them know how to operate technology as good as an informed adult. And now, they act in ways we cannot control or understand because adults are unaware of what children are exposed to on YouTube, especially with creepy AI videos. We have no idea what it's like to grow up with a brain that experienced what they experienced in the crucial years of development. What will amaze a tiny brain acting like it's on psychedelics when it has devices of teleportation at its fingertips? Especially with mirror neurons, which are neurons that activate when we watch someone else move or act. When we watch someone else run, our mirror neurons fire the exact same way as if we are running too. It's the epitome of manifestation. When you envision yourself doing something, your brain acts like you're doing it. So kids can watch anything on the internet and these mirror neurons will just go, bam, you're doing it too. It's an insane simulation that can now be applied to a magical screen showing every experience ever recorded. How do you capture a kid's attention when they're watching someone dance and do flips on a cloud fabricated by AI to a ridiculously catchy song? 
the power dynamics have shifted and many parents just give up. They just give their kid the iPad. These kids are like adults in sheep's clothing. Generation Z are all babies, for better or for worse, and I'm Generation Z. We don't want to work. A lot of us live with our parents. We don't have sex and get pregnant at the same rate as previous generations. We embrace neurodivergence, and we all want to make silly little videos with the latest technology and silly little podcasts. It's not all bad, though. We can envision ourselves in a multiverse of futures. Our mirror neurons are exposed to far more than just farming or teaching or factory jobs in the Midwest. A kid can dream. A kid can manifest. Verbal and physical abuse gets you canceled real quick nowadays. I personally vibe with the Gen Z mentality, but I am scared too. We see the world burning before our eyes. We see American policies being thrown out the window. We understand that thousands of people can die from a virus in a short period of time, out of nowhere. People in Gen Z and younger don't just grow their brains from the world around us, but the simulated ether world, the internet, video games. Our little tiny brains cement these as truths, making the overwhelming psychedelic childhood experience of the real world extend into other realities that we can control. We grew up with control of microtowns like in my Animal Crossing game and Sims, control of armies and war games, control of animals and pet games, robots, you guys. These games impacted our real emotions, but we don't understand what are considered adult topics in the earthly world, like marriage or nine to five or being parents. Most of us are not ready for those things or don't want those things. We understand everything more like parallel simulations and possibilities of other realities. When hours of our day are spent witnessing everything through Instagram reels, we lose the meaning to our own traditions that correspond with our physical grounding. Although, that can also be attributed to immigration and colonization. So what? So as much as Gen Z wants to figure out and solve climate change and save the world, Gen Z needs to figure out how to be grounded. How to work in their own community communicate verbally in physical proximity to a stranger. Gen Z needs to figure out how to be real, how to understand social cues in order to have fruitful conversations that actually change people's perspectives. You can retweet something you believe in all you want, but no one's going to do anything about it unless they feel a real connection from a warm body. That real connection is most effectively made by getting together with people in the physical world, talking about difficult concepts or your own emotions and questions and reading social cues to know how and when to empathize and calm your peers down. If you really want to create change, you cannot be vulnerable to triggers. Nothing is currently holding us accountable, not Krampus or Santa or a Zoom camera. Maybe just fake people canceling you on the internet, you know, perhaps social media is the new Santa or Krampus. Likes and shares and follows if you're nice, canceled and blocked if you're naughty. 
But in the real physical world, the only thing that might beat you with a stick is a cop during protest. And how will we teach children how to navigate this virtual world that is here to stay? A mostly free world comes with great responsibility. And that's what being an adult is all about. You need to pave the path for learning and falling down and spinning around and understanding your body in space. Knowing about what real people think in your neighborhood is a really good way to start. I need to take some of my own medicine. In this wintry time, I suppose my suggestion is to reach out. Not texting, calling is better. The best thing for you to do is to put some life energy into something like making food or crafting or painting and knocking on someone's door and physically giving them that thing. Maybe it's your neighbor you don't know yet or the friend that you failed to hang out with for months because of your social anxiety and exhaustion. But this will energize you, I promise. And I think if we all do something like this, it could take a step towards saving the world. I know it. That's all I have for today. Remember, as you control your video games, the games control you, which is not always a bad thing. Email your episode-related stories and thoughtful comments to tillintales at gmail.com. That's T-E-L-Y-N-T-A-L-E-S at gmail.com. If you happen to find yourself drawn into the realm of my episodes or even accessing more interesting dreams, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hours upon hours go into creating these episodes on top of my part-time job and other pursuits. This podcast is my personal attempt to take control of my interests, talents, and identity as a performer. But if you like it too, tell your friends, rate my podcast, leave a review. If you become a patron, I'll make sure that you'll get access to bonus musical or poetic shop performances, Zoom discussions, experimental harp sessions, a say in what I should research next, and other nonsense. For my current loyal patrons, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I will always be gracious for your feedback and happy to fulfill your requests. Bye-bye now, and happy holidays.